Let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Happy Father's Day. On this Father's Day, I'm reminded of a moment from the night our son was born. It was maybe six or seven hours after he was born. We had been awake for almost all of the last 48 hours and just kind of running on adrenaline, euphoria. But now that was kind of starting to wear off. We were in the room, uh, just the three of us now, mommy and daddy and baby, uh, with no helpers. And um, this is the place where, okay, it's time to get some rest. But of course, baby's not cooperating, right? Baby's not resting. Uh, He's screaming and we're trying everything. We went to all our classes, right? So we're trying all the five S's and uh, swaddling and shushing and nothing's working. And at first it's kind of funny. You look at each other and laugh and say, oh, parenting's hard after all. But then as time goes on and baby isn't getting quiet, it gets not so funny anymore, right? It starts to get a little bit scary. And after what felt, I don't know if it was an hour, it felt like an hour. uh, I started panicking a little bit. I found myself thinking some thoughts that were pretty crazy, like, wow, maybe God didn't want us to be parents because he knew we couldn't do it. Like, maybe this is it. Like, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, after this whole day where my wife's been such a warrior and just pushed out a baby, now I'm going to be the one who ends up in the ER because I had a nervous breakdown. I'm about to lose it. Um, I just need some sleep. So right there in the depths of that dark moment, as we're panicking, trying to get this baby to be comforted, as we're getting frustrated with each other, uh, there comes a silhouette in the doorway, a hero. Tears come to my eyes, and I just can't tell you how happy I was to see that nurse in that moment. And just the tears are just flowing, and I'm saying, I just need some sleep. Just help, what do we do? This baby won't be quiet. What do we do? I just need to sleep. Um... I think our text today in Isaiah 11, in there, Isaiah is addressing a wit's end situation in which his people are in a dark moment just like that. Would you turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 11? Isaiah, you're going to want to be there and follow along with us. As you're turning there, let me just remind you of where we are. We've been working through the early chapters of the book of Isaiah. God has been telling his people, Israel and Judah, that because of their disobedience, he is going to allow enemy nations to come in and invade and conquer them. And the conquering is going to be so decisive that they're going to be taken out of their land into exile. The nation of Assyria is going to come in and take God's people into exile. But then, where we left off last week, at the end of chapter 10, there was a strange command given in verse 24. In the midst of all that, bad news, Isaiah says, be not afraid. Don't be afraid. And if I was one of the people of Israel, I'd say, that's odd. You just told me that my two options were to crouch among the prisoners or to fall among the slain. And now you're telling me, don't be afraid when that happens? And Isaiah says, yeah, don't be afraid. Here's why. There's two reasons. One, God's anger won't last forever. It'll soon turn away from you as he redirects it toward Assyria, toward the nation that took you into captivity. That's what Pastor Craig took us through last week in the last portion of his sermon at the end of chapter 10. The other reason not to be afraid is what we're going to see today in chapter 11, that Messiah is coming to transform the world. That's 
the message there in chapter 11, but it still really falls under that command in chapter 10 not to be afraid, and Isaiah is explaining further exactly why not to be afraid. This Messiah is coming. This hero figure is going to show up in the doorway at the darkest moment that you have when you've been brought into exile, and he's going to save the day. There's so many layers to our text today in Isaiah chapter 11, so we're just going to have to just skim the surface, unfortunately, and just survey what's going on there. Um, The way we're going to kind of attack it is we're going to look at the prophecy itself, then we're going to spend some time looking at how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 11, and then finally we're going to talk about our response. What do we do with what we've seen here? So first, we'll unfold the prophecy. We'll have to do so very briefly. Um, The prophecy unfolds in three parts. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 are Messiah's character. Verses 6 through 10, Messiah's triumph. And verses 11 through 16, Messiah's people. So we'll walk through each of those as we go. First, Messiah's character. If you'd follow along in verses 1 through 5. Let's read there about the character of this Messiah to come. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. A few observations there on those first five verses. Have you noticed, if you've been around the last several weeks, have you noticed this forest theme come up in the book of Isaiah? At the end of chapter 6 it came up when Isaiah said that God's people are like this forest that's going to be chopped down and left just like a bunch of burned over stumps. And then Isaiah returned to that theme last week at the end of chapter 10. And he said their enemies, the Assyrians, will be, end up being like a forest that's been cut down and burned. So now he picks it back up again at the beginning of chapter 11 where he starts out talking about the Messiah using these terms. You see it there, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Um, that's how, the, how Isaiah chooses to frame the Messiah, as, one of, as, as though one of these stumps that's been left has a shoot spring up from it, and that's Messiah. Uh, uh, he comes from what seemed to be dead, and he represents new life. He's the shoot or the branch. So we say, tell us more, Isaiah, about this Messiah figure. And so Isaiah continues in verse 2 by talking about how this Messiah will be empowered by a different spirit altogether than the spirit that Israel and Judah's previous leaders had had. This spirit uh, is a sevenfold spirit, we might call it, because in verse 2, commentators have pointed out that Isaiah describes this spirit in seven different ways. The spirit of the Lord, it's called. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. He describes it in these seven different ways, and we could spend a whole sermon talking about those seven, but maybe it would just suffice for now to point out that 
Israel and Judah are in the mess that they're in at this moment, largely because their leaders have lacked this sevenfold spirit. Their leaders have been governing by trying to do whatever it takes to stay in power, but Isaiah says there's a leader coming, a king coming, who won't just govern by what is the spirit of the age. He'll be guided by the spirit of the Lord, and it all really comes down to that last item in the list, the fear of the Lord that produces the wisdom and the understanding. In other words, he will be primarily guided by trying to please the Lord with the way that he leads. Now, we probably need to pause here because we've been throwing around this word Messiah without defining it. Messiah is just a Hebrew word that means anointed one. That's just the Hebrew word for anointed one. And so, in a sense, all the kings of Judah and even of Israel were anointed ones. In the sense that literally oil was poured on their head. They were anointed with oil at the time when they became king. And the Bible can talk about even priests and prophets as anointed ones, messiahs, because they were anointed when they took their office. But if you read through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and you read through all of these messiahs and read about them and read what's said about the anointed ones, you might start to wonder, is this all pointing to an anointed one, capital A, a, a messiah, capital M, par excellence, one who is going to be the ultimate messiah, the ultimate anointed one? You might think that because you read about one of these anointed ones is going to be a king who sits on David's throne for all of eternity. That doesn't sound like any king from David's line. You read about uh, one of these anointed ones whose body will not see decay. God will not let him see decay. And you start to wonder, maybe there's an ultimate Messiah to come. And indeed, Jewish rabbis and theologians started to draw that conclusion over the years. Even before the time of Jesus, they were picking out texts from the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, and saying, this talks about the ultimate Messiah, the Messiah who is to come. This passage that we're looking at today, Isaiah 11, is one of the prime passages that they would point to. Uh, Do you see there that in verse 1, this Messiah is called a shoot from the stump of Jesse? Who's Jesse? You can call it out. Jesse was David's father, right? So David was the first king in this line that God said would last forever in Israel. So it's kind of odd to read that this Messiah here is going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. We might expect more naturally to read a shoot from the stump of David, right? Because he was the first king in the line. So why a shoot from the stump of Jesse when David would be more natural? Maybe it's because... Isaiah has in mind, the Holy Spirit has in mind through Isaiah, that this Messiah isn't just going to be another in the Davidic line, but rather a resetting of the Davidic line, an ultimate Davidic king, a new beginning of the Davidic line, right? Not just following in the tainted path that's been carved before him by his forefathers, but rather restarting, going back to the roots of what it was originally meant to be in the first place. Do you see that language there in verse 1? As he's talking about the shoot from a stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots. What Isaiah has in mind here is an ultimate anointed one, a king to end all kings who fulfill all the prophecies of Messiah. And so it's probably no surprise then to read what we read in verses 3 through 5 about the character of this Messiah who's the exact opposite of the corrupt 
kings that Israel and Judah have had in recent years that have gotten them into this mess. I mean, in verse 5, we even see that righteousness and faithfulness are so integral to who this Messiah is that they are presented as though they are his undergarments. That's really the language there in verse 5. And the most intimate garments to the Messiah. In other words, if you strip away everything else about the Messiah, here's what's left. Righteousness and faithfulness. That's who he is. That's Messiah's character. Let's move now to Isaiah's, or to the Messiah's triumph in verses 6 through 10. That's what's discussed in this next section. Please follow along with me as I read there. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." The Hebrew word that best characterizes verses 6 through 10 here and the, the scene that we see, the Messiah's triumph in these verses, might be the word shalom. You've probably heard it. It's often translated peace, but it's more than just, shalom is more than just the absence of hostility. It's not that sort of peace, really. It's more like wholeness, soundness, completeness, right? It's, it's unity between parties that were previously estranged from one another. It's nothing missing, nothing broken. It's everything set right, everything the way it was meant to be originally. It's shalom. That's what we see here in verses 6 through 10. There's no place for violence, no place for destruction under the rule of Messiah as it's pictured here in verses 6 through 10. And how does Messiah's rule bring about this perfection? I think we see the answer in verse 9, don't we? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And we're asking how. How does this come to pass? And then it answers it. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, what brings about this state of peace, this state of shalom, this state of wholeness, nothing missing, nothing broken, is the knowledge of the Lord being pervasive. And that phrasing there, the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the sea, that shows up several times in Scripture. So if you're somebody who reads through the Scriptures regularly, you may end up getting into habit, as I've found that I have, and just kind of skipping over that and just reading through it. I've seen this a million times. But do you ever stop and think about that? Do you ever stop and think about just how much of the sea is covered by water? Pretty complete coverage, right? Um, like, imagine if the earth was as covered by the knowledge of the Lord as the seas are covered by water. That's what Isaiah is painting here, the picture, that the percentage would be the same, 100%. It's the Lord is known by all human beings, all animals, it seems. Uh, all has been set right because of it. Um, and that includes, well, the result of it is that kids are playing follow the leader and lions are following behind them, right? Cows and bears are getting together to schedule play dates for their kids, Right? Nobody's hurting or destroying one another because Messiah's rule is filling the whole earth. And that includes foreign nations even. Nations who had never worshipped the one true God before. 
Did you see that in verse 10? It talks about the nations and the Messiah being a signal for the nations. That's a stark change from the signals we've seen in past chapters where God was giving signals to the nations to come and attack his people, to come and invade them. Now the signal is a signal to come to Messiah, to inquire of him, to submit to his lordship. Now the nations are rallying to him. That's the triumph of Messiah. It's pictured in verses 6 through 10. Now I promise we're going to get practical here in a little while. but We're laying some groundwork here. You still with me? One more piece of groundwork to lay. Uh, It's Messiah's people, verses 11 through 16. Let's read that. Please follow along with me. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. And strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. We can walk through this one more briefly and just say this. The bottom line here in verses 11 through 16 is that God is going to regather his covenant people, from all the places where they are found. The list of locations in verse 11 is so vast that the message is there's no place on earth too far for God to bring his people home. He'll bring them home from wherever they are. And the path home will be so well trodden that there will be a highway, that language is used there in verse 16, from Assyria back to Israel. That's the ease with which the remnant will return home. Okay, so we've walked through the chapter now as briefly as we can. We, we've, we've unfolded this prophecy in Messiah's character, Messiah's triumph, Messiah's people. In context, I think Isaiah is saying something like this, just on a, on a bare first reading of the chapter. Israel's kings have failed. Judah's kings have failed, most recently Ahaz. However, the failure of Israel's kings is not the final word. There's another king coming. And this king... From the line of David, but going back to the roots of what it was meant to be, this king's going to be different. Let me tell you about this king, Isaiah says, in the ways that he will transform the world. He will transform the world to an even greater degree than even our greatest kings, David and Solomon, were able to do. That's the message of chapter 11. However, we still have some more work to do because we are here in 2019 and uh, we're not living in Isaiah's day anymore. They were awaiting this Messiah to come, this king, this ultimate king. We are living, and we have the privilege of living on the other side of it to where he has come, and some of this has begun to be fulfilled. So let's spend a few minutes talking about the fulfillment of Isaiah 11, as far as we can tell. First, uh, we'll just walk through the same three parts of the text, character, triumph, and people. First, Messiah's character. Let's, let's revisit verses 1 through 5. Look back at it again with me for a second. Just scan through it. Re- remind yourself of what's there. This was the section about 
the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And now we're asking the question, could this be Jesus of Nazareth? Could Jesus of Nazareth be this Messiah? And maybe to start that exploration, we could start with a puzzling statement we read in Matthew's gospel. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus's. This is 700 years now after Isaiah gave this prophecy. Jesus has lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. And Matthew spends a lot of time in his gospel pointing out how Jesus was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. But this is one of the most difficult ones of his to understand. Here's what he says. Matthew says, and he, that's actually talking about Joseph here. Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene. Pretty straightforward, except if you go to your Old Testament, your Hebrew Bible, and you search through for the word Nazareth, or the word Nazarene, you won't find either one. There is no prophecy in the Old Testament that Messiah is going to come from Nazareth. Nazareth is never talked about. There's no prophecy about him being called a Nazarene. That word's never there. So... Christians for the last 2,000 years have been puzzled by this. What is going on here? And then you realize what Nazareth means. Nazareth, Netzeret. In our parlance, we might call it Netzerville, Netzer town. A Netzer is the word shoot or branch from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. In other words, this Jesus who came and lived in the hometown of Nazareth, was the shoot from Shootville, or the branch from Branchville. I think that's what Matthew may have had in mind when he said that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that the Messiah would be called a branch one, a shoot one. What else from this passage? That doesn't mean that he... Uh, fulfilled or matched everything that people expected Messiah would be. Actually, many of Jesus' contemporaries, as you may know, didn't think that Jesus fit the bill at all, right? Um, And Christians over the years have spent a lot of time criticizing Jesus' contemporaries. How could they have missed it? There's so many prophecies in the Old Testament about Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled them. How could they have missed it? But look again, just at chapter 11, verse 4, for example. Think about if you had grown up reading this and hearing it read in the synagogue and having your parents share it with you. You were so familiar, well-versed in this passage about Messiah, and your hope was for this Messiah. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So he's making legal decisions. He's striking the earth with the rod of his mouth, and he's killing the wicked. Okay? Is it that crazy that many of Jesus' contemporaries expected a political and military leader? To come as the Messiah? I don't know that it is. I don't know for sure that I would have expected anything different when I read a verse like Isaiah 11.4 or many others, right? It certainly sounds like there's legal decisions being made. There's enemies being killed. Surely, if we're living in the time of the Roman Empire, if Messiah comes now, he's going to overthrow Rome. They've unjustly oppressed us, right? But that's not what Jesus came to do. And so many rejected him as the Messiah. And on one hand, I'm trying to say that there's something understandable about that. That said, if we look a little closer, it was here all along, wasn't it? Isaiah was picturing someone like Jesus all along. Did you notice the weapon that the Messiah is using even in chapter 11, verse 4? What's he striking the earth with? What's he killing the wicked with? It's 
It's the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips. In other words, his words. This Messiah, who was expected to be a political military figure, all along was prophesied to come fighting not with swords, but with his words. And that's what we see in Jesus of Nazareth as he came. And what do people keep saying about him over and over again? We haven't heard anybody speak like this man. This man speaks with authority that far exceeds any of our teachers of the law. He was the sort of speaker that when he opened his mouth and spoke, it cut you open, laid all of your secrets bare. And we know ultimately that he was the sort of Messiah who came to fight the ultimate enemy, sin and death, and would conquer not the Roman Empire, but a greater problem that we had. So we can see how Jesus matches verses 1 through 5, the character of this Messiah. Maybe just one more note about the match, though. Remember in verse 2 about the spirit that was going to rest upon the Messiah? That sevenfold spirit. Listen to what happens in the early days of Jesus' ministry. Maybe we won't even read it, but this is the account from Jesus' baptism. And what happens at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit of God descended like a dove and came to rest on Jesus as he was in the water. In fulfillment of this prophecy, that this Spirit would rest on Jesus. And in all of Jesus' days on the earth, he was empowered by this sevenfold spirit with the seven descriptors given in Isaiah 11. It was the source, the spirit was the source of Jesus' wisdom, of his power, of his miracles, of his obedience. So this is just a brief overview, but I think we can see that in terms of character, in terms of identity, Jesus fits what we see in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5 perfectly. What about the triumph, though, in verses 6 through 10? How has that taken place? If Jesus the Messiah has come, then how has this triumph happen and what I'm going to argue for is that it hasn't happened yet at least not in its entirety so scan that again verses 6 through 10 refresh your mind on what's there it's the part about the wolf living with the lamb kids playing in cobra's nests the earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord has this been fulfilled that's the question we're asking so maybe we just think about a few possibilities of how maybe it has been fulfilled was it fulfilled when God brought back his people from exile in Assyria and Babylon. That was a great moment, but remember there were tears when they came back because it wasn't as great as they hoped it would be. It didn't measure up to all the prophecies in Isaiah's day about the return from exile. And so the people were happy, but mixed in with a little disappointment, as we see in the book of Lamentations. So maybe it was when Messiah came, right? When, when he lived and died and rose again and all of history met its climax. Maybe that's when Messiah's triumph took place, when verses 6 through 10 of Isaiah 11 were fulfilled. However, the picture of shalom here hasn't come to pass, even after the resurrection of Jesus, after, after he dealt that final death blow to death itself. It hasn't happened. Well, maybe it was then when the Holy Spirit came and started indwelling in the hearts of his people. And still we see that it hasn't happened in its fullness. However, in God's people, in the kingdom of God where Jesus the Messiah reigns in the hearts of his people, we do see glimpses of this, don't we? For example, in a church that comes together for worship in a Sunday, on a Sunday morning with Jew and Gentile who are supposed to be enemies. Rich and poor who were supposed to be opposed to each other. Uh, in our country, black and white. And in, in, in many places over the years, slave and free. Coming together to worship, to love one another, to take communion together, to serve one another. In that picture of unity in the church, in that picture of shalom, we see just a hint. It's like, 
it's like a preview of coming attractions showing us what's going to happen in large scale one day in the age to come. So I suppose what I'm arguing for is that it's a preview right now. We're seeing a little bit of it. It has begun to happen, but it hasn't yet happened in full, and it won't happen in full until Jesus returns once again. When he returns, he will reign, the Bible teaches, on a renewed earth. And what is prophesied here in verses 6 through 10 will take place. There won't be violence. There won't be destruction. Because the cruelty that runs so deep in us right now will be totally removed from us. A summary, maybe, of verses 6 through 10 and how they've been fulfilled is that these verses have begun to be fulfilled now, but the fullest fulfillment is coming in the age to come. And just like Scripture teaches throughout, there's an end, a final state, a final end to where the story is going, but that end, the good news is that that end has broken into the present in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we get to see glimpses, previews of it, foretastes of it in our present time. We're going to see that in the third section of the text as well, and we'll be able to do that briefly again. Have verses 11 through 16 been fulfilled yet? Well, partially, but not fully. Let's look at it again, verses 11 through 16. Scan back through it. Remind yourself about what's there. This is the part about God recovering a remnant. Is this talking about a return from exile? Yes, it is. However, the scope of what's talked about here is far greater than anything that happened historically when God's people came back from Assyria. Right? Look at the, all the places in verse 11 that God's people are coming home from. That is far greater than anything that happened when they came back from Assyria and Babylon. Um, so whatever partial fulfillment took place in the return from exile a few thousand years ago, that couldn't have been the fullest fulfillment of this. And so when we realize that, we start looking for hints then, at least I do, in the text about could this be picturing a greater fulfillment, even than the immediate return from exile? Could there be any hints here that there's maybe a greater fulfillment, even from a greater exile that's coming? I think we do have a hint there in verse 11, don't we? There's a little phrase in verse 11. You see it? He will extend his hand yet a second time. What does this mean that he'll extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant. One possibility is that the first time was the exodus from Egypt, and the second time is from Assyria. That could be possible. Verse 16 talks about the exodus from Egypt, so that's certainly possible. However, this is all talking about a second fulfillment in the time of Messiah. So some have suggested this, that the first time was the return from Assyrian exile, and the second time is a future fulfillment of this, a future full fulfillment of this in the time, in the days of Messiah. So maybe some have then started to look to 1948 and what happened uh, when something shocking happened that nobody expected in the history of God's people when Jewish people were brought from all corners of the earth. It really did match all the nations uh, talked about in verse 11 and more and brought them to their original homeland. Maybe that's a full fulfillment of what's talking about here. But there's problems with that too, isn't there? Uh, for example, the believing, believing remnant talked about coming home here wasn't really true of 1948, where many of those people who were brought home did not acknowledge God in it. So m- maybe there's something there, another partial fulfillment, but maybe it's better to look for the ultimate fulfillment of verses 11 through 16 
in a greater return from a greater exile. Our greatest exile, the exile that we've experienced as a result of our sin, our rebellion that we've all participated in against the God of the universe who loved us. And Jesus came and started regathering God's people to himself. He started with 12 disciples, which reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he constituted what's called in the New Testament a new Israel, what Paul calls the Israel of God. It's made up of Jew and Gentile believers in Jesus, the Messiah, who come from all the four corners of the earth and are gathered into a kingdom and will one day reign with him forever on a renewed earth, a remnant, a believing remnant. Whatever is meant by that phrase a second time in verse 11, the message here is that God is making a way for his people all over the globe to return to him, and no enemy and no barrier can stand in his way. Okay, so we've talked about the prophecy. We've talked about the fulfillment. Okay, to summarize where we've gone so far, Uh, We've seen that Jesus, King Jesus, the Messiah, has begun to exercise his kingly reign now. But the fullness of his reign is yet to come when he returns. We get glimpses of it now. So all that's left for us to talk about now is response. What does this mean for us? Great. Isaiah had a prophecy. Great. Jesus fulfilled it. What does that mean for you and me this week? Um, A few thoughts in terms of a response. One, first is for... uh, our Jewish friends who are here, believing in Jesus, not believing in Jesus this morning. Um, We're reading from your Bible. We have come to treasure your scriptures, Jewish sisters and brothers that you've passed down to us. And many of us, Jew and Gentile here in this room, have come to believe that your scriptures that we've come to love point with a bold line to Jesus of Nazareth being the hope of the nations, the ultimate Messiah to come. So I just want to ask you, as one point of response, have you looked into Isaiah 11 and the many other passages about Messiah? Have you looked into them and explored whether Jesus might be that Messiah? Second thought with regards to response. I think there's two sets of ditches we need to avoid. And what I mean by that is this. Like there's a path to walk, and then there's a way to go wrong over here, and then there's a way to go wrong over here. And it's easier to walk the path when we're aware of the ditches on either side, right? So two sets of ditches that I see in, in, as we're talking through a response to a text like this one. First set of ditches. Maybe one ditch is over here. One way to go wrong is that we would take Isaiah 11 ultra-literally, And we would take out our prophecy charts that we're filling out and take the newspaper in our other hand and every day look at the news and see what's happening today that fulfills Isaiah 11 and then make definitive declarations about how Isaiah 11 is coming to pass today or in 1948 when this happened, right? Maybe that's one ditch to avoid. But on the other side, the other ditch to avoid would be to say, none of this is literal. We shouldn't expect any literal fulfillment. This is all about the spiritual and we should only look for spiritual lessons. That's the only legitimate thing here. I think what we're called to in the scriptures and what we see working out time and time again is that the path to walk is neither of those precisely. The path to walk is one of humility with regards to knowing how prophecies get fulfilled, right? We should be humble about that. We shouldn't be speaking definitively about current events and how they are fulfillments of scriptural prophecies. However, we also must leave room for things to be literally fulfilled, 
partially or fully, right? Because that does happen, and God's actual words are things that often do tend to happen in history. One of those that we believe and hope for here at North Sub is that one day there will be a literal return of many, many Jewish people to their Messiah, Jesus. And we'll see that happen in widespread numbers in hopefully in our day, but sometime before he returns. A second set of ditches to avoid. Here's one ditch over here, one way to go wrong. We, the church, can bring Isaiah 11 to pass. So let's all pull up our bootstraps and get to work so that we can, through our efforts, cause the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We can do it. That's one ditch. 2,000 years of church history have showed this to be an errant way of thinking, right? Because for while it's true that nations influenced by Christianity have been uh, really good to their people, really good with human rights, have been generally positive for humanity, we also have the Crusades. We also have World Wars I and II happening in so-called Christian Europe. We have many, many Christians taking the Bible and twisting it to justify their sinful actions, right? So it seems unlikely at this point that God's plan is to just gradually start here with 12 disciples and work his way out through the church so that over time, slowly but surely, the whole earth is covered by the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The other error, though, on this other side, is to say, you know what? The knowledge of the Lord is only going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea when Jesus returns and he does it. So I'm just going to sit on my hands and just wait for him to return. There's nothing for me to do now. No point. The Bible never gives us room to do that either. Right? Because while we may not be able to transform the whole world on our own, we do have a peace that we're called to. And so we must do our small part, empowered by the Spirit in a particular time and place. In other words, even though we might not bring the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, I might be used by God to transform my block in my neighborhood so that the knowledge of the Lord covers my block in my neighborhood as the waters cover the sea. That may not be huge, but it's something. These are some thoughts as regards to response, but the main response from this text is our big idea for today. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Messiah will transform the world. In, in your dark moment, when you're at your wit's end, when you're despairing even of life itself, as the Israelites were when they were brought into exile, don't be afraid. Messiah will transform the world. When all hope seems lost, don't be afraid. Messiah is coming, and he will transform the world. And we're now living in a day in which he has come and started the process. We get the benefit of seeing glimpses of it, the fullness of which is still to come. Well, you remember the nurse I told you about that stepped into the doorway there in my darkest moment or what felt like my darkest moment that night? I, my brain, my memory gets a little fuzzy as to what happened after that point, but somehow she solved the problem. I think maybe we were allowing him to be too cold. We weren't wrapping him up enough, and so she helped us do that, and we were able to get some sleep, and it was just a massive, massive relief. And many of us have experienced in a much, much greater way that when we are at the end of ourselves, at our wit's end, because of our sin, or because we chased down what we thought was going to satisfy us and got there and found it wanting, Jesus showed up in the doorway in our darkest moment and grabbed hold of us. For some of us, 
It was because we were seeking pleasure everywhere we could find it and couldn't grab it. And Jesus came in and grabbed us in our despair. For others of us, we were trying to seek fulfillment in doing good things and living a good moral life. But no matter how hard we chased that down, we couldn't find fulfillment in it. And there in our despair, Jesus came and grabbed us. The stories are different for everyone in this room, but many, many, many of us here have found that when we were at the end of ourselves, Jesus showed up and saved the day. If you've experienced that, then would you join us after I pray in singing this song wholeheartedly, asking Jesus to expand his reign over the whole earth? And if you haven't yet experienced that, I just want to invite you to just listen in for the rest of our service together. We're going to sing a song, and then you're going to get to hear from somebody who's being baptized today, somebody from our church, and she shares her story of how the Lord Jesus, the Messiah spoken of in Isaiah 11, has grabbed hold of her and transformed her life. He might just do the same for you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that in your son, Jesus, in his coming to earth and in his life and in his death and resurrection and ascension to your right hand where he sits now, that you enacted a plan that you had from before the foundation of the world to draw your people to yourself to set all things right after we made it go wrong. After we rebelled against you, you stepped into our mess, you stepped into our brokenness, and you brought shalom. And you did so by solving our greatest problem of sin as Jesus took that penalty for us at the cross. Lord, as we reflect on that, help us to rejoice. As we reflect on the truth that you're coming again to set all things right, help us to take heart. Help us not to be afraid, even in our darkest moments. And Lord, for any here who haven't yet experienced your transforming power, haven't yet experienced Messiah coming and invading their life, we pray that even this morning that some would encounter you in that way and that their life would, forever, would never be the same because of the encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing this prayer together.